You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This is the Average Conservationist podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies, breweries, Contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What is up, everybody? I hope everyone is off to a great Wednesday. Uh, the week is going well, um, depending upon where you're at. Obviously, your hunting seasons have started, or if you're further to the east here, uh, Midwest like myself, we are certainly counting down the days uh, until we're able to get back in the field. But nevertheless, I hope everyone is well. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. I have a great episode for you today. Uh, Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Christopher Spencer and Dr. Adam Ford. And these two were part of a project um, that studied uh, the 
population and herd of mule deer in the southern interior of British Columbia. <clears throat> and throughout uh, the course of the research project or, or really kind of a, a culmination towards the end um, of a certain phase of the research project, um, they put together, Christopher, Chris put together a, a film called Community for the Wild, um, really kind of highlighting and documenting uh, as much of the process and <clears throat> the work that the these biologists uh, and volunteers were doing as possible. And uh, really, it's a great film. It runs about 30 minutes. Um, and But it just kind of shows you and walks you through the process uh, of everything uh, that takes place. You know, we get to talk today about, you know, really how, from um, Adam's standpoint, how the whole project came to be, how he got involved, you know, what the project, you know, looked like. And the kind of the the goals that were set out uh, a lot of things that they learned throughout the process um, and then now they're at this point where they're trying to really analyze the data I guess is the best way to put it and try to make recommendations uh, and figure out what the next steps are going forward to try to help prevent um, you know this herd of mule deer in the southern interior there um, not uh, become something that is talked about in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years um, about how we're going to try to save this animal and this and this species here uh, in this part of the world. So it is a, a great conversation, uh, a ton of great insight and information. Um, and then obviously from Chris, we get, you know, his take on things from being behind the lens and, you know, what the film looked like uh, for him and his involvement and just all around um, a great uh, a great conversation, um, a great topic, and, and one of the reasons that I certainly love uh, to be able to do this podcast and talk to um, individuals like this. So episode 116, Chris Spencer, Dr. Adam Ford, uh, with their with the film Community for the Wild. Uh, enjoy. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by my friends over at Go Hunt. If you have not already, download the Go Hunt um, <clears throat> Explorer membership, excuse me, um, it's going to give you all 50 states, all 50 states for $50 a year. Uh, it is a great deal. There's nothing else uh, like that out there for that price. It's going to give you that much information. Uh, and if you use code AVERAGE at checkout, you're going to save 20% on that. Plus, you're going to get $20 to use towards their gear shop. And if you don't know by now, Go Hunt uh, is really the first and last place you need to go when it comes to hunting. You can get all your gear there. Uh, from you know, sleep systems to tents, um, your boots, uh, any accessories you need, camo, optics, all the good stuff, plus everything that you need from a scouting standpoint to make sure that you're ready when you hit the field. So head over to gohunt.com. Be sure to use code. Be sure to use code average at checkout, uh, where you're going to save 20% on that new Explorer membership. Or if you want to go for the whole thing and you want to um, sign up to become an insider. Use code AVERAGE there as well. You're going to save 20%, but then this time you're going to get $50 to use towards their awesome gear shop. So again, check them out at GoHunt.com. <clears throat> All right. I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Christopher Spencer and Dr. Adam Ford. Welcome to the podcast, guys. How are you? Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Doing well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm. Uh, <clears throat> some of this is going to be a bit of a repeat for you guys, but you know, I'm excited because, Chris, I think it was, gosh... I don't know, we may be coming up on a year from the first time that you had reached out about this project. And we just were never able to really get everything to line up. And then we, you and I had talked, Chris, 
um, just kind of went over like a general rundown of the project. And then uh, we brought Adam into the fold uh, as one of the uh, biologists that was involved as well. And then that took another toll. And then I think it was maybe like a week or so ago, one of you guys had reached out and said, hey, are we going to make this happen or what? And thankfully, like a week later, uh, our schedules aligned. So uh, I'm really excited to, to talk, guys. Yeah, I think um, literally a year ago, we delivered this film to TV. And, you know, we started sort of reaching out to a couple of people to see, you know, who wanted to talk about it. Um, and one thing led to another. And like you said, you know, a year later, we're finally here. So, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> there's a lot I want to try and cover. Uh, I know we only have a, a set amount of time. So first things first, why don't you guys give a little bit of a, an introduction about yourself and, and the roles that you guys played uh, in the making of this film, Community for the Wild? Sure, why don't I uh, kick it off here? So I'm Chris, I'm a producer, director of Vancouver, uh, Canada. So that is uh, you know Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. And I work both at the University of British Columbia as a supervising producer. So I manage projects mostly around research communications, recruitment, marketing, things like that. But I also work on a few projects a year outside of UBC. Um, and so, you know, Community for the Wild is one of those documentaries. Um, yeah, so that's uh, me. I'm a media producer, director, and Adam, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Adam Ford. I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia at the Okanagan campus in Kelowna, BC. So that's the, the southern interior part of the province in Silk uh, Traditional Territory. <clears throat> um, my role in the project was as a faculty member, as a, as a PhD advisor to Chloe Wright. And uh, her, she's the PhD student who's leading some of the coloring work that's involved in this project. So within that, my job is to support her and other students at UBC to do research, to find funding for them, to build partnerships, to help them navigate through their degree process and share the science that they're doing with the community. Okay. All right. So now let's talk about the, the actual, the research project, uh, the film that coincides with it, Community in the Wild. So give me a, a kind of a quick elevator pitch, 30,000 foot view of, of what exactly um, the project is and all that. Starting with the hashtag uh, is Simdeer. So the Southern Interior Mule Deer Project is what we're sort of captured under. This is a multi-university, multi-region project for us. It's become British Columbia's largest mule deer project in history. So there's three large study areas within each of those regions. We have about 30 adult female mule deer uh, fitted with GPS collars, some six month old fawns, and even some neonates uh, for as long as they're around with us. Um, it's usually they're, they're not here for very long after we collar them. Um, and then we have a bunch of camera traps that are managed through a partnership with the University of Idaho. So there's about 170 cameras um, and a lot of volunteer time to move those things around and Really what we're looking for in the bigger scope of this project is how is landscape change influencing the mule deer population? So things like wildfires and forest harvesting, roads, a little bit of uh, harvest, but mostly we're looking at these landscape scale effects on the population. So what was it that really inspired the project? To, I mean, why, you know, why the mule deer, mule deer herd, um, especially in that region of British Columbia, what was it? That, that Adam made you and your team or, or some of the students there say, hey, um, something's going on here. Um, you know, we're seeing numbers down, whether it's 
um, from aerial surveys, whether it's harvest numbers from from hunters. What was it that that kind of spurred the whole project? Yeah, great question. I mean, it really was a grassroots effort. We were hearing from um, from the, so the rod and gun clubs that the mule deer populations are not what they used to be. This is a common story for a lot of species in British Columbia, unfortunately. And mule deer are one of those sort of indicator species of what's going on in the landscape here in southern BC. So they indicate changes in habitat quality for a whole host of other species. And we've done some work on that to make sure that we're not just saying that, but it's actually, you know, pretty tied to to where we think uh, different species are, are headed. So what we do for mule deer, we do for a lot of other critters. And between that and the community motivation to support mule deer research, it was so strong that um, yeah, kind of felt like it was our duty as in the in the academy and in the university to respond to that community need to find uh, ways to restore this population. Okay, and what I guess what was the 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 starting point, or you know, when you decided that you were going to embark on this on this research project to really study uh, the herd, the mule deer population there in, in BC. I mean, it, it seems um, like such a tall task, right? Like it, it, I mean, they say the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, but, you know, with something like this, with so many different moving parts, you know, so many volunteers that are involved, what did, um, I guess, kind of the initial plan look like from, from the onset? There were definitely hiccups. So we started, <laughs> we started, I guess my involvement started when I got this job as a professor here in 2016. So, you know, at that posi- at that point in time, I had an empty lab. I had some startup funding from different agencies to like, okay, build your research program. And the university doesn't have a strong say for, for us about what we do. <clears throat> so I could study fruit flies or mice or chipmunks, like all interesting things. Um, and someone said, you know, we're trying to solve this milder problem. And I said, I'd love to help however I can. And from there, we, you know, had a field visit and there was, we're talking about, you know, some failed funding proposals, five grand here, 10 grand here, no here and there. And then over time, you know, some of those, some of those no's turned into, well, here's $20,000 to get some callers to get this off the ground. That was enough to start recruiting people into the project, specifically this PhD student, Chloe Wright, who came from a top-notch deer a research lab in Montana. And from that, we could start to, you know, we had a person to sort of build the project around on my end. And so with that, <clears throat> Chloe could, um, you know, bring in the volunteers and we could start to shape the questions, the main questions of the project. And we started with one region and then other wildlife managers in the province saw where this was headed. And they said, hey, we're f- facing the same issues in our region. Could we hop on with you? and so it kind of grew from there. And that's the amazing part is, you know, you talk about the journey of, you know, uh, of, of 10,000 steps starts with one step. And here it's one of those, like, it takes a village to to raise a kid, but it takes a village to to run a project like this. There's no sort of single overarching boss of the whole thing. There's a lot of peer-to-peer, a lot of volunteer time, a lot of, uh, like, there's no master budget for it. Uh, people are just chipping in what they can. And at times that's a little bit of a head scratch, but at the heart of it is a bunch of folks that want to see something get done and they're doing everything they can to make that happen. And that's kind of why it works. Like I sometimes think, is there a better way that we could have done this? And to be honest, I don't think we would have had the success that we've been having on the research side. Uh, if we tried to formalize this in any different way, it's, it's been flexible. 
and it's been inclusive and that's why it's uh, taken off like it has people can see themselves in it right that's the that's what's happening yeah and at the end of of all of it there's um there's kind of a tangible result right you can when you have the data we can you actually analyze it and and formulate uh, a game plan going forward um or even you know capturing fonts to put collars on i mean that is at the end of the day when you walk away you can be like you know, I, this is what I, I actually did something, right? I didn't just, well, I don't want to say I just did, you know, this or that, but I mean, something like that and, and getting your hands dirty and, you know, hiking the mountains to, to try to pick up locations and, and find these fonts that, you know, you see in the film that are, I mean, anyone who is familiar with, you know, when um, does drop their fawns, I mean, those things are camouflage for a reason, right? They're, they're very difficult to find, uh, especially, you know, in the early spring or late spring, early summer time frame, um, they're, yeah, they're, they're very difficult to find. And, and when you do, it's a, there's a real sense of accomplishment and what, what kind of uh, alluding to what you said, Chris, there, what, what surprises me is how important topics and research projects like this are. I mean, not just for mule deer, but for all sorts of, of different species and wildlife and how little a lot of people are willing to to put up in terms of a financial support to, to allow people like you and your team and all the other volunteers do that work is, uh, it's, it's really surprising to me. It really is. I'll, uh, chime in there quickly. So, you know, well, Adam might be at the university of British Columbia, Okanagan. I'm literally a couple hundred kilometers away from him in Bang, Vancouver. Right. And I think I learned about this project a couple years in, I was actually at a, uh, back, uh, Backcountry hunters and anglers meeting in Vancouver, and they came out to present about the project to say, you know, who wants to chip in? We need a couple of dollars to buy some cameras to put on the landscape so we can start learning, you know, what are the predators, where are the does, what's happening. Um, you know, I don't have money, but I, I said, you know, hey, I, I'm a communicator. I produce films. Maybe I can get involved in one way or another. And as you go through the process, you really see. It really is a community of people who are coming together. You've got different nonprofits, and you've got the indigenous nations, and you've got the researchers, and you've you've got people with boots on the ground, walking transects, trying to find deer. Uh, people, you know, online tagging photos of you know what's a mule deer, what's a uh, uh, whitetail, what's a right cougar uh, to help the system learn. And it's it's just everyone doing anything and everything they possibly can, uh, which I don't think people realize how much work and how much effort goes in to the research that it takes to affect change. And so, you know, I think that's sort of what spawned wanting to make this movie was to help bring research to the public to to show them what's involved and that it's people just like them that actually makes things move. Yeah, Chris, I was going to ask you is as someone who was, you know, behind the camera for for this project and, and, you know, doing, you know, the interviews and, you know, the just all the the beautiful footage that that is in the movie, you know, what what is something that that you learned throughout the process or something that maybe you weren't um, quite familiar with, um, you know, with either mule deer or with kind of the the process uh, in its entirety? Yeah, I think um, one of the days, or probably the very first day I 
went out with a virologist. So we were you know, looking for uh, does in the Okanagan. Um, and I got put in a car with Addison Fosbury, a, a uh, Okanagan Nation wildlife biologist. And he was calling it window time, right? You're sitting in the truck, you're driving up these logging roads, backcountry roads, and you're just talking for hours. And between the the sheer passion that Addison sort of, you know, exuded for wildlife was not only was not only intoxicating, but the sheer volume of knowledge uh, of wildlife, the local histories, the flora, fauna, um, really sort of gave me a unique sight, uh, a, a sort of unique insight and appreciation to the power of people just sitting in cars, working together, talking. And through the hours they got to put, you know, in the cars, boots on the ground, the relationships that you start to build, right? And it's it's through relationships that you build trust and it's, it's through trust that you build inroads um, that help push, you know, more projects or push change uh, ahead. And, and that was one thing I definitely didn't expect was to sort of, you know, see and learn from people just by sitting beside them for eight hours in a car, right? Uh, I, 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 I expected, you know, more action on the landscape less driving roads. Um, <laughs> but the driving roads is, is really what stood with me probably the most is getting to, you know, build relationships with the people. Yeah, it's the foundation for everything. And it's amazing how the the passion and enthusiasm um, of someone can really spark um, a passion and enthusiasm within other people as well. Because I'm sure that, you know, as you're, you know, spending, you know, eight hours in the car with someone and, and you guys are obviously talking about the project and he's giving you, you know, this history and this rundown of the region and all that stuff. It's, you know, by the time, you know, you, you step out of that truck, you're like, all right, let's get going. Right. Like this is, this is what we came up here for. And and that type of stuff is contagious. And if you can, you know, if you're lucky enough to you know harness that and to get a large group of people that all have that same um, mission and that same, you know, motivation and enthusiasm. I mean, you can do some tremendous things and, and, you know, even with a small group of people. Yeah. And in fact, I think, you know, even at the end of the day, we didn't even find a fawn. Like we, <laughs> we spent like 12 hours and, you know, came up with, with a zero, but, you know, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, people, too often are, are focused on the differences between them, right? And if you can just spend time, you start to find commonalities, right? And almost everyone enjoys the outdoors in one way or another, right? If it's hunting or angling, camping, hiking, skiing, mountain biking, you know, people who just want to drive up to a national park and do some wildlife viewing, there isn't a person I've met who says they hate the outdoors. Right. And so, you know, whether you're, you know, conservative, liberal, it doesn't matter, right? What matters is that common goal of wanting to protect and preserve wildlife and the wild places. And it's people like Adam who really are, you know, trying to make a difference. Yeah. And that's, uh, that what you mentioned about people in general, you know, trying to find their, their commonalities within each other instead of their differences. I mean, not only in, in an instance like this, but just life in general, I feel like more people should take that outlook because <clears throat> If, if you spend time 
um, you know, looking for the positive, you're going to see the positive things and you're going to find those commonalities like you mentioned. But if you spend time looking for the differences, it's going to be, there's just a negative energy that follows that around. And the older I get, the more I realize like that's, that's just no way to live your life. I mean, life's too short. I mean, in the blink of an eye, you're going to be, you know, retired or, you know, 75 years old and you're going to look back on all the all the, the different memories and there's not going to be a lot of positive ones, right? It's going to be a lot of negative stuff and you're going to wish you would have done things a little bit differently. So <clears throat> Adam, uh, uh, so you mentioned this started in 2016 is when this was first kind of brought to you and when you guys first started getting this things going. Did you have kind of a, a clear goal or a clear objective at the start of it or was it just to really get going see what you can see and kind of let the research guide the project. We definitely had this idea that landscape change or habitat is probably the underlying driver of mill deer declines. We couldn't really, you know, how much fire or how, what age of, of forestry generation is probably bad for mule deer. We don't have those precise numbers. That's what we're trying to get to, but we did have a sense that it's probably a habitat question. Then within that, you know, we did sort of a, like a roadshow tour and went to some different clubs and um, had some different public meetings just to say, Hey, this project is getting off the ground. Here's where we're at so far. Like, you know, a year into it, let's say, you know, we don't have enough data to tell you the whole story, but you know, we've had some successes. Look at these animals like running around with collars. So sharing that. And in those meetings, we got a lot of feedback, you know, our list of hypotheses of potential cause and effect here was maybe three or four in the beginning. And, you know, after these, you know, road tours, it was like 10, you know, it's like, someone's like, what about cows and what about elk and what about quads? And we're like, great. Yeah. Let's put it on the list. We'll check it out. So that's how, yeah, that's one of the reasons that snowballed a bit. And, and thankfully, I mean, that's again, you want people to see themselves in these projects. And so it's easy for, you know, uh, academics to be seen as, you know, having all the answers and coming in and telling communities, Hey, here's how it is. And that's a vibe that we really don't want to give off. We want to go in and say, what do you guys think is going on? How can we listen to you and bring that information into a scientific method so that we can report back on what, what the data actually show? Because those are all good ideas. And any good scientist gets, gets their ideas from watching nature. And that's all these folks do. You can watch nature, you know, through your scope, you know, through your binoculars, by walking around. And all those are places where people get ideas. I mean, I, I got into this field as a, as a fisherman. And, you know, you talk to, to fishers about, oh, it's, you know, gold on cloudy days and silver lures on sunny days or whatever it is, or this lake is really works well with, you know, red lures or something. And, you know, that everybody's got a hypothesis in the back of their mind about how nature works. And that's what we're trying to listen to and, and bring that into, again, like that scientific method and, and, you know, come at those questions with data. Yeah. That, that collaboration process, because people see the same thing through different eyes, right? So, you know, you and I, you know, Chris or, or Adam, we could be, you know, standing on, you know, the same ridge top, you know, just all three of us are glassing and you notice one thing, I notice one thing, Chris notices another. And it's, it's important to take all those viewpoints in, into play, especially with a project like this and, and the magnitude and, you know, what's really at stake, uh, with trying to, to understand, you know, the, the herd and the population and when you talked about the landscape change now you've kind of alluded to a few different things or or mentioned them is it the 
you know, is it the predatory animals that are in the region? Um, is it logging? Is it urban sprawl? Is it a combination of all of them? What have you seen that kind of was the, the biggest culprit of the landscape and habitat change? Probably something to do with forests getting older and in this middle middle age where the there's no understory food. So we have a, a lot of forest harvesting here and, and I'll just take a step back. A lot of the best mule deer research that happens in the world happens in places that have much different habitat conditions than we have here. So I'm thinking of places like the, the open country in say Wyoming, where you've got, you know, more of a sagebrush steppe kind of habitat. And up here it's, you know, ponderosa pine and lodgepole pine, dug fir and that sort of thing. And so what happens after a harvesting, forest harvesting or even a fire is you get this, you know, immediate flush of um, understory growth, which is productive for ungulates. So the first, say, five to seven years or so. And then over time, the forest grows up and it can come in quite dense. Some folks call it dog hair, like a dog hair forest. It's like hard to even walk through and there's no understory. It's just a barren. And it's hard to imagine a mule deer making a living in conditions like that. There's just no food. So the mule deer in this part of the world have have co-evolved with a very dynamic and probably human caused fire regime. We're talking fires like seven to 10 years. And the fire record for this part of the world shows that most of the fires stopped in about 1950, 1960 with like active post-war fire suppression. So it's been decades of losing one of the main drivers of food creation for the species. And then we have fires coming back, but they're burning at a different intensity than they ever have before. So we're not even sure that the fire that is coming back in this part of the world is is all that healthy, but it's happening whether we like it or not, because these, yeah, just we can't stop these big fires from from rolling out across the landscape. So it's a very dynamic place. And uh, we're just trying to put together that picture of, you know, what's the right dose? Like the, the dose is the poison with some of these things and what's the right amount of of forestry and, and, and forest fires that are going to be healthy for the deer population. Yeah. And that's, you bring up a good point there, Adam, with the, the forest fires or just the fires in general and the important role that they play in, you know, an ecosystem in a habitat because of that regrowth, right? That, that regenerative, um, properties that it brings to the soil. Um, you know, when it's kind of, when it burns through and I would imagine when you were talking about the fires of the earlier years that, you know, they were coming through and they were, I don't know if, you know, I'm not a firefighter or anything, so uh, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but almost like a surface fire, right? It's not doing, uh, it's not burning everything to the ground, but it's burning up a lot of, you know, the grass, what's on, what's on the ground, um, maybe low-hanging branches, things like that. But it's not actually destroying all of the, the trees and everything in the region, which is why you're getting that regrowth and why that's so good for the habitat. And then now, I mean... <laughs> I guess let me let me ask a follow up question to that statement here is the the fires that you talked about now with the the higher intensity level is it did you know what's causing the the higher intensity or is it just the the conditions that the fires start in it's just a, a buildup of fuel there's just so much fuel out there it's a, it's a big tinderbox there's a lot of deadwood that never would have been there before like you said the the fire ecologists call it lifting the canopy so you know, if a fire hasn't come through an area in a while, the branches get lower and lower on those big trees. And so what we're seeing now in a place that hasn't had fire is the 
the ground fires that you just talked about are it's easier for them to, to ramp up and get into the canopy and get more, become more devastating. So keeping, you know, a, a frequent fire on the landscape is probably the best thing for, for people and for the animals. And this is one of the first summers we haven't had like a complete smoke out in the Okanagan in years. Like it's been so nice um, to be able to see blue sky for most of the summer <clears> because <throat> it's very unusual these days. Yeah. Now, Chris, from, from your standpoint, you know, when you, you got involved in the project, did you kind of have a, a vision of what you wanted the film to look like? Or is that a process that it kind of comes throughout talking with the researchers, talking with the biologists, the volunteers, and trying to really form this, this big picture before you actually got to filming and started, you know, you know, capturing, you know, all of this, this different work and, and interviews and things like that. Yeah, I think you know, the process really started by having conversations with folks like uh, Adam, right, and Jesse and Chloe and all of the other researchers, just to sort of, you know, information gather, right? I was I was trying to learn as much about the project as possible so I could start to envision what are some of the filming opportunities, what are some of the stories we want to tell, uh, what footage can I capture and what do I need to collect or find, um, because this all also happened during the pandemic, and so there were you know, provincial guidelines of, you know, can people be within six feet or do we have to wear masks or, you know, am I even allowed to drive a couple hundred kilometers and go find Adam, right? Um, and so there were a lot of challenges just trying to make the movie to begin with. And I knew it wasn't going to be realistic for me to fly across the province when the entire project, you know, is about the size of a small country, really. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 worked pretty actively with a couple of different people to come up with a uh, visual guide of what we wanted the film to hopefully look like. Um, and so I could hire different cinematographers in the different regions to help come together. So we, we had sort of two main cinematographers, um, Adam Foss, who is a very well-known photographer and cinematographer in the hunting community, and then Mark Wyatt. And so between the two of them, they filmed most of it. Um, and then we had a couple other people that was filming down um, in uh, Utah, uh, as well as um, uh, over in, in Seashell to pick up a couple other pieces. Uh, so, you know, I think that was kind of the, the process was step one, information gather. What are we trying to, to tell? What are some of the days and opportunities we can get out on the landscape to film? Who are the key characters we need to want to film and speak to? And from there, just sort of or organically build, build it out. Yeah. Now, as the process <laughs> went on, you know, from a filming standpoint, I mean, it started in 2016. So did you start filming in like 2019 then, somewhere in that range or 2000? I mean, when did you actually start the filming side of things? Hmm. Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. It's, it's 2022 right now. We delivered in 2021. I think we filmed mostly the spring of 2021. It was a, a fast and furious sort of um, collect as much footage as possible and deliver. We we didn't get the sort of green light uh, for funding until I think it was winter 2020, and so there were no captures going on. And um, Adam said, "Well, the you know next chance is capturing fawns in in the spring." So we, you know, tried to capture everything pretty much in that spring, and it was a pretty tight turnaround when you're you're working with broadcast seasons and and deadlines. Unfortunately, you're you're sort of stuck within their fiscal years and and their broadcast dates. 
which I think um, the network who, who funded this, uh, they launched in September of 2021, which we filmed in the spring with the fonts dropped, uh, edited through the summer and right out the, the door almost immediately. Yeah, that's a really quick turn. I mean, I don't know a lot about the, the film industry and and the editing um, on, on that side of things, but I mean, that, that seems like a really quick turnaround. It seems like you guys certainly had your work cut out for you um, to hit that September deadline, but September also feels like a good time to launch uh, a project like that coming, you know, right into deer season, right into, you know, the, you know, hunting season starting pretty much, you know, in the West and then working its way, you know, East here. And that's, uh, that was one of the things I guess I didn't really think about before you mentioned it, Chris, was the, the network side, the, the release side of things, because that's a, a whole nother set of problems I'd imagine in and of itself, as opposed to, you know, the research and, and, and making sure that you're depicting, you know, what the project really entails. Yeah, there's, there's always a bit of juggling when you, you know, put on that hat as a producer, as, um, you know, networks also want to keep their relationships with stakeholders in, you know, good faith. And so they, they certainly wanted to weigh in with, you know, how much can we show and what do we want to say that we're not pushing too many buttons as well, even even as as far as, um, uh, you know, showing a deceased deer, right? We uh, went on a, um, a, a trip, you know, a, a, a deer uh, collar was um, off and, you know, presumably dead. And so a couple of the, the researchers and the camera went on out to see, you know, what was the cause of the death. Um, and that was definitely something we had to censor a little bit, um, just to meet the broadcast requirements and a couple other things. Um, yeah, so we had, they had launched in September, um, had a couple festivals. It's still going through the festival run right now. So coming up this fall, it's going to be at the, um, International Mountain Film Festival in Germany, as well as, uh, the Rotterdam Wildlife Film Festival in the Netherlands and hopefully a couple more, um, yeah, so, you know, September is definitely a good season to launch a film like this. You know, you, you've got a pretty active audience. And uh, the feedback we did get was it was one of the most watched films of last year for the network. And so even though it was only up there for four months, it was still one, still one of their top, top viewed films. So, you know, I think people definitely appreciated learning about conservation and the landscape. And, you know, fall is a great time. You know, people are trying to get out of the rain here in British Cup in uh, BC. And uh, I think that sort of worked out for us a little bit. Um, if all goes well, I think the network's going to do a second push coming up this fall, this September, October. Um, but, you know, it's already on YouTube. So, you know, folks out there, uh, you know, wherever you are can watch it. Yeah, we'll definitely be sure to, uh, I'll put a link to the movie uh, in the show notes so that people can see it because uh it's about a half it runs about a half hour and it's a great film i mean there's a lot of great insight from the biologist um some i the scene that you were referring to chris there where you you know had a collar that you know i think you guys call it like it was there was a lot of cluster readings on it where it hadn't moved um in a few days time so given the time of year like it was assumed that that was um that that, that doe had been killed and i think if i recall the researchers were out there within 48 hours and there was hardly anything left. I mean, they found the collar by itself, um, you know, kind of in the general area uh, of where the doe was killed. But, you know, that's 
that scavenging um, that the the predators and, and the other critters you know in the area do. I mean, that's certainly something that that all hunters are familiar with. The the time frame in which that happened though was something that was pretty surprising to me. I mean, you know, I'll come across you know here in Michigan with whitetails. Um, you know, you'll find a, a carcass in the springtime after the thaw. And presumably that, that animal has been dead either sometime, you know, December, January, February, sometime in that, in that range. And there's still a good part of the deer left. Right. And for there to be, you know, basically just some bones, at least what was shown on camera bones <laughs> left, uh, within 48 hours. I mean, that shows you, you know, what these animals are up against on a day-to-day basis to try to survive out there. Yeah, I think uh, it was 48 hours. We found the collar, uh, part of the rib cage, uh, the jawbone, and the femur, uh, and the rest was somewhere else. You know, scattered. You know, probably by by that time, coyotes. Yeah. So the project started in 2016. <clears throat> We're in 2022 now. Is this project still ongoing? Have you kind of done all the research that you? need to to try to come up with a conclusion or to try to come up with um, suggestions for changes, whether it's in, you know, um, tag allotments, whether it's in, you know, the foresting that's going on there, you know, what, what is the process of the project at this point? Yeah, great question. We're having those conversations right now in, in a big way. So we're calling it SimDeer 2.0. And so in this next sort of phase, uh, Chloe and the other students are spending their time and energy writing up. They're trying to analyze the data and spending less energy out in the field collecting new data. Uh, so we're sort of replacing their field effort with other folks just to kind of keep things running until we get the next sort of batch of students on board. And then we're looking now at a more of a, a restorative process so that the information we've got now is, let's call it like a baseline. So here's where we're at now. And my job title is, is wildlife restoration, you know, chair in wildlife restoration ecology. So instead of just like documenting declines, we want to put our science towards finding solutions. And that's where the next stage of this project is going. So how can we do restoration projects at a scale that matters to mule deer? Not just a little postage stamp, you know, thinning treatment or some, you know, some small burning, which I understand why that happens. It's risk averse. You don't want to burn down the whole landscape when people are very fire wary around here. Uh, but we do need to do things at a scale that we're going to see a population response because currently there'll be these great restoration projects that happen and you you walk around it, Marcus, it's like, this is beautiful mule deer habitat. I could not tell you how many more fawns came out of this landscape. How many? How much better is this for the population? Do we get two more deer out of it? Like, where's the, where's the data? And we just don't have it. Like projects aren't set up that way. So we've got this solid baseline. We can, we can leverage that moving forward for the next five to 10 years and keep adding to this and <laughs> We know some things that are probably going to work again fire like the habitat side are probably going to work access management is another big part of it um when and where can we can we you know folks work can the managers work with stakeholders to um you know maybe dial back some of the road access there's so many roads here you know hardly anywhere on this landscape is beyond 500 meters from a road so it, it's um there's a few i guess different threads that we could apply that that restoration lends to, and that's how we're trying to set up the next few years. And a big part of that is what kind of partnerships are involved. So now, again, the project's growing. So we've got a, a federal government partnership coming together and more Indigenous communities on board. And in British Columbia, that's a big part of the story because much of the land here has not been treated or ceded. So we're still in this sort of ambiguous legal framework of who owns the land and 
within that um, First Nations or Indigenous communities in Canada, especially BC, have a big say and a growing say in wildlife management. And so it's an exciting time to build these partnerships because things can change in a, in a way that they haven't been done before. So we're excited for where the next few years are going to take us on this project. Yeah. Now, from the the Indigenous people or tribes side of things, um, are they, you know, really welcoming to to this help to to better understand the landscape? Because, you know, I, you know, just as as much as you know, regardless of whose land it is, I guess you know everyone is is using it to to some degree, and if you're using it to live off of, um, you know, to to a great extent, you're going to have a much higher stake um, in in what is being done, how it's being treated. Um, you know, the the restoration project, like you mentioned, um, has has that been like really welcome, uh, welcomed by them in terms of you know wanting to wanting to help and wanting to make sure that the right things are done. For sure, we're seeing yeah really strong and positive response from the communities that we work with. Obviously, they're you know they're committing field staff in kind, so like Addison and others are out there from these communities taking charge of different aspects of the project. And that's just how this whole thing works. Like academics are part of it, government's part of it, First Nations, the hunting community, you know, and I'd say too, um, we often hear in, in some of the hunting, you know, community, like hunting is conservation. And, you know, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Certainly I know hunters, a lot of hunters want to contribute to conservation outcomes. And, you know, that's what your podcast and your audience is keen to hear. It's not always the case that just because you hunt something that you know you're contributing to the solution right and the, and but mule deer are one of those species where we don't have like a very active non-hunting community that supports them and so who else is going to be there but the folks that like who else cares about mule deer and there's a few species that are in that that list that you know what people you know there's there's bird watching communities like a lot of bird watchers don't want to eat ducks, you know, um, they might, but not, not many. So there's a lot of non-consumptive use for other species, especially the large carnivores. But for ungulates, you know, there's just isn't that same kind of non-consumptive um, groups out there that really care and can commit to supporting them. And so it's just great to see uh, anybody come up and it's, you know, nine times out of 10 for something like mule deer, it's it's the hunting community. So it's great to see that. Yeah. And you, you made a good point very early on in the conversation when you said it's the mule deer is kind of a, a measuring stick for, you know, the habitat, uh, the population, uh, in the wildlife, just the, the, the general, um, the general habitat. Yeah. Because I've talked about this with other guests and one of the things I think that people might not understand, at least from the outsider, from their, their perspective is, you know, you have groups like the Mule Deer Foundation or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation that are, you know, very species specific. But what they don't realize is whenever they're doing these habitat projects, the effect that this is going to have on all the other species, you know, the, the upland game birds, um, pollinators, you know, all these other things that when you improve habitat for, you know, what you may be saying is for mule deer, it's going to have, you know, a positive effect on everything else in the region. And that, that symbiotic relationship between all these species and, and all these different animals is something that I think sometimes goes maybe a bit under the radar or just it, it's a bit understated um, unless you're, you're really kind of dialed into to what's going on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's just, it's a, it's a motivating factor. You'll get people out of bed in the morning in a way that some of these other critters don't. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's just like, let's, let's move forward with, with our best foot here. And right now for the Southern interior, that's mule deer. 
So what has been, this is for both of you guys, what has been your biggest takeaway from this entire project? I mean, Adam, you've been, you know, at the forefront of this for, you know, almost eight years and that's a long time to invest into anything. I mean, the only thing I've committed to for eight years is probably my marriage at this point, right? I mean, I can't really point to anything else and be like, yeah, I've spent eight years doing this um, and here's what I have to show for it. Um, so what what have you guys taken away, you know, from your time spent within this project? Uh, okay, I'll go first. Yeah, not all at once. The biggest, I guess the biggest takeaway, I mean, one of the things I liked about Chris's film is the first word there. It's community. And that's what I love, you know, doing this project. When I was interviewing for different faculty positions, I asked someone who was interviewing me, like, why do you, why are you a prof? Like, what do you like about this job that I'm trying to get? Because I didn't know anything about the job, really. And he's like, I get to choose uh, who I want to work with. And I thought that's a really interesting idea. And something like this Mule Deer Project is just where that's at. I mean, just to to be around folks that are so concerned and passionate and not just talking about ideas, but like, let's go. Like, I got my boots on. Let's go. I'm ready for it. And I love being around that. It's inspiring. And I love what we learn. You know, there's a there's a little kid in me that's just curious about the natural wor- world. And, and we get to, you know, we have different gadgets now than we did when we were, you know, six years old, looking at, with a magnifying glass, looking at ants or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have fancier tools, but some of the same interesting things are going on. Like, like you're mentioning the question or the ideas around the, the fawns or the newborn um, that are featured in the film, like, Chloe came up with this method for us anyways to use uh, tracking of adult females to find where those bonds might be. And in the past, we've people have had to use transmitters inside mom. When that transmitter comes out, that sets off a different signal. And then you can go out and find that transmitter. You're going to find the fawn. It's a pretty invasive procedure. If you can imagine all the steps involved in making that happen. So we've come up with this other method and I we didn't know if it would work and tried it with a pilot project and lo and behold, it's been our go-to. And so now I've got students building off these ideas, mapping the mule deer nursery of the Okanagan, for example, like what do these birth sites look like? And yeah, it's just, it, it, we never really know where all the questions are going to go, but um, kind of feeling like we've, we've built up this really solid base of, of information that now the scientists, now the curiosity gets to take hold. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I think to sort of echo what Adam said, um, you know, we named a community for the wild for a reason, right? Uh, and I really was seeing that genuine interest from the community, not just a hunting community, but beyond. Um, you know, from a production standpoint, you know, we had a really tight budget to work within. Our our you know local broadcast dollars aren't exactly flush, right? And so, um, you know, people did what they you know, could do to, to pitch in and help out and take cut rates. And, you know, people like myself got no money. And, and it was really just about, you know, helping an audience connect with authentic scientific examples of successful, con- of successful conservation. I think all too often people, you know, talk about doom and gloom and, and what's wrong and what's not going right. And I sort of wanted to flip that narrative a bit and, and show people that, you know, things can actually start to move forward. Um, you know, instead of just showing everyone what's going wrong, you show them, you know, the people who are helping 
to make change. Um, you know, and from from you know the community of researchers, nonprofit, the volunteers, um, you know, to the people behind the camera and <clears throat> excuse me, uh, our colorist and sound designer and editor, everyone just sort of pitching in whatever they can do to help tell the story and help get you know that successful story out there. Yeah, and you know. One of the, the, the challenges, Chris, that, that I imagine that you had with making the film is, is really capturing that, that community aspect like you just talked about. Because when you watch a film like this or you, you read about projects um, that go on and, and all the volunteers that, that come together, and a lot of times the, the story uh, becomes more about the outcome than necessarily the, the journey to get there. <laughs> And capturing the the journey, I think is is what at least from from my standpoint is what really captures me as a as a viewer or a reader, or something like that. And you know, when it comes to hunting, like the you know, I'm I'm gonna kind of talk personally here. Uh, you know, the harvesting a, a, a white tail buck or you know a turkey in the spring or something like that, like that is great, and that is you know just such a small fraction of the story that you almost spend no time talking about it, right? It's, you know, what were the conditions like that day when you were out in the field? You know, what was the animal doing? What was its behavior like as it came into range? And, you know, was there other stuff around? What else did you see? And those are the things that that really captivate an audience. And to sometimes it's hard to explain. It's hard to, unless you see it or unless you've experienced it before, seeing that, that, that community like you talked about, that everyone coming together, it's hard to really convey to someone, but this film does a great job because, you know, you show, um, you know, researchers and students and different biologists that, you know, are, like you said, driving, you know, eight hours a day to go and, you know, try to capture some fawns. Um, and, you know, Chris, in your particular instance, you guys didn't even catch any, but it wasn't even about that, right? Like that whole story that you told, you just, you spent, you know, 30 seconds saying, yeah, but we didn't find any. It was all about the drive up there, the drive home, what took place on that. And those are the types of things that I think more and more in this day and age, people want to hear. They want to hear about the the details, you know, the, that the beauty lies in the details. I don't care what it is. Um, you know, the monotony, the, the, whatever it is, the over and over the repetition, that's what I think drives people and motivates people and especially um, inspires them to get out and, and do something on their own. And in this particular case, you know, get involved in, in the film and in the research. Yeah. Um, Adam, how do people get involved in, in, in the research? <laughs> Pause. There's a project, there's a project website um, that we can bump that to you, Marcus. And I guess the other trait here that's underlying this whole project is a whole lot of no quit. Like even Chris's funding for the film, there was a couple no's, right? Or at least one, maybe more, Chris. And and you stuck with it, right? And and hang, hung on to that vision. And the same thing with the science side. There was, there was a point where we started recruiting students for a grant that we were pretty sure we were going to get. We didn't get the grant. And then we had to tell people like, sorry, the recruitment's off. So there's been some bumps along the way and just that's where leaning on each other and, and that, that village aspect helps us keep going and keep trying and keep going down that bumpy road. Yeah. Because what comes out the other side is, is certainly going to be with it. And I know Adam, I think it was you that, that I talked about it in the film, um, that, you know, if, if, 
if this type of research isn't done and the the data isn't collected and nothing is done if we keep going down the same path then you're looking at um an instance when you know 40 50 years down the road you know you're talking about extinction endangered species list um you know things like that and imagine what that does to you know not only the species but the other species that you know rely upon it for food or whatever the case is i mean mother nature just being mother nature but also the people that rely on mule deer for for sustenance for food um you know through the winter and, and through the summer to help feed their families and stuff and if if that goes away the i don't think the the ripple effect is something that can really be quantified yeah we're watching it with other species right before our eyes and and my, some people you know with, with mule deer in their garden eating their tulips might say there's no way that this species is in and having a hard time um but there's other critters that have people have had that same opinion about and lo and behold they're gone so yeah let's not let's not watch these animals disappear and do something about it while we can yeah well <clears throat> guys this has been a great conversation this is um a topic and a and a, again a conversation that uh, was long overdue i'm glad that we were finally able to to make this happen and for everyone listening i highly encourage you guys to go out and watch this film community in the wild um there will be uh, a link to it in the show notes um, as well as uh, a link to where you can volunteer uh, if you're in the area or if you just want to make a trip up to bc to get involved for a few days whatever the case is you guys can get it all um you know, lined up through there. And I, I highly encourage you guys, if you can, um, to get involved and to give back because this is a, a great project and, and Adam and Chris and, and the entire <coughs> group of volunteers are, are doing tremendous work with this particular project. Thanks so much for the chat today, Marcus. And for, yeah, shining a light on, on the great film that Chris put together and for the project as a whole, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, thank you, guys. All right, well, take care, and uh, I look forward to hopefully getting you guys on again, and, and we can talk about where the project's at in the future. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely you should. I know Adam has some really fun stuff going on with cougars as well out there in the Okanagan, uh, which we tried to get funding for. It didn't quite pan out, but they are just adorable. These baby cougars, you should uh, <laughs> check them out. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a it sounds like a definite uh, conversation to have at another time. Absolutely. All right, guys, take care and thank you again. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you again to Adam and Chris for joining me on the podcast today. Um, definitely be sure to check out the film Community for the Wild. Um, there will be the uh, <clears throat> a link to the episode in the show notes and everything like that, so you can check that out. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Hardside Hydration, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, Wild Rivers Coffee, Outdoor Class, and of course, 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% of follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation driven content so you'll certainly enjoy that so again if you'd like to learn more about two percent for conservation you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org thanks for joining me this week everyone hope you enjoyed the episode uh, do me a favor be sure to subscribe or follow the average conservationist podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also check out the average conservationist.com so until next week as always, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.